You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, in approaching Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, we really are moving into the next section of Luke's gospel. Luke has done wonderful work of obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us the backdrop of the ministry of Jesus, uh, giving us the promise of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, the birth of John, the birth of Jesus, the uh, early childhood of Jesus, the early ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation uh, of Jesus as well, proving him uh, for the work of ministry uh, that is to come. But the question that you might ask at this particular point is, what would the ministry of Jesus actually look like? What, what would he do? What was his goal? What was his ministry going to be focused upon? And of course, the people of Israel might have asked that kind of question as well had they looked honestly at the Old Testament predictions concerning the Messiah. They would see promises concerning a suffering servant uh, who would uh, die and that by his stripes we would be healed, but they would also see uh, one who would rule and reign and be in power and authority, a king that is to come uh, from the line of David. And so what kind of ministry would Jesus conduct? And Here today, in this little section, we're going to see Jesus quote from Isaiah 61 and define for us and detail for us what his ministry would look like. In one sense, this would be the mission statement of Jesus. And so we start out in verse 14 after the period of tempting in the wilderness, and it says that Jesus returned in the power of of the Spirit to Galilee. So again, once again, the Spirit of God all over the ministry of Jesus. Uh, The Spirit was upon him and the Spirit led him into the wilderness for that time of testing. And now he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which was a region there. And a report, verse 14, went about him through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so here we have Luke giving just a sort of a synopsis kind of statement that Jesus was busy and active in working uh, there in the region of the Galilee. And so the event that we're going to see where Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth was not the first thing that he did. Uh, according to Luke, after he came out of the wilderness, but he was working there and, and ministering there in the power of the Spirit. Notice what he was doing, however, verse 15, he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. You know, I think sometimes we get the impression that Jesus's ministry uh, was primarily a miracle working ministry power over the demonic realm with a little sprinkling of teaching uh, mixed in. But Jesus was primarily a communicator of the gospel, a communicator of good news with 
a sprinkling in of the miraculous to support that message. They operated as signs which would point them to a deeper reality. And so he goes around teaching in their synagogues and he came, verse 16, to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Notice the custom of Christ to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He was in one sense, even though this was the synagogue and on Saturday, uh, so not the church, but he was a church going man. If you could say it like that, he gathered together with God's people, the opening of God's word and uh, just a beautiful thing there from the life of Jesus. And the scroll, verse 17 of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so, we have this beautiful scene where Jesus goes to his hometown. He has more than likely already relocated to Capernaum. And he comes back home and goes to the synagogue and they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, we don't know whether Jesus went and specifically searched for this passage or some people think it was actually the, you know, reading of the day, sort of the assigned text, Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. But it says there that the first thing that it uttered was simply, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And so here we have now the answer. What would his ministry be like? What was the spirit anointing him for? And obviously we know from his baptism, from his temptation, that the Spirit of the Lord was wonderfully upon Jesus at this particular moment. And so what would the Spirit initiate? What would Jesus's ministry be all about? Well, I think one of the first things to perhaps hone in on, because you have these different elements, you know, proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. But the final thing in verse 19 is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, some people believe that this is a rock solid reference to the Israelite year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25 verse 10 uh, and 11 detail what that year would look like. I mean, they had Sabbaths that they would keep every week. And they had, of course, monthly celebrations, new moons and festivals for that. They would have yearly and annual festivals that every year they would come upon Israel and worship the Lord. They had every seven years a period of rest that they would give to the land, but they had this every 50 year season as well, where all the debts that had been accrued over the years, all of the slavery that people had entered into, all the trading of family property and lands, all of that would be reset in the year of Jubilee. Enslaved people would be set free, property would be returned to their families, clans would be reunited, and the land would rest during that 50th year. And some people think that when it says in verse 19 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that that's what Isaiah and that's what Jesus 
were referencing that Jesus is the fulfillment of that year of Jubilee. And whether or not that's exactly what's being spoken of here or not, we do know that all of those images were fully fulfilled in Christ. He is the one who comes to express that now we are under the season, the time, the year of the Lord's favor. He resets all of it. And just the great hope for mankind, that mankind was lost in sin and rebellion, enslaved, that we lost our dominion, that we gave it away and all of that, and that we can now be reunited to the Lord, be set free from our slavery, regain that which was lost and receive rest in our souls because of Jesus seems to be indicated there in that beautiful little phrase to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But notice the specifics of that great grace that Jesus introduces. He says to proclaim good news to the poor. You know, uh, obviously Jesus loves those who are in physical poverty, but his message is about so much more than good news for those in physical poverty. Although the news of Christ is wonderful for those who are in poverty because, well, number one, he wants his people to care for those who are in an impoverished state. But number two, it's good news because, well, the gospel message is hopeful for those who have a difficult lot in this life. Hope in the next life and eternal glory. But really, wouldn't we say that the good news to the poor must be primarily spiritual in nature? The good news of Jesus for those who are spiritually poor. Those who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt before God. You won't receive the good news. In fact, it doesn't even sound as good news that Jesus died for your sin and was buried for you and rose from the dead for you. It doesn't even sound like good news unless you embrace the reality that you are spiritually bankrupt before God. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, the first word of it, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the wonderful news for those who realize their impoverished spiritual condition, the message of the gospel. He says also, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And of course, in the early church, we will see actual physical captives be set free by the Lord. But Jesus really here is giving spiritual release for spiritual captives. We've been held enslaved by sin. But the wonderful thing, according to Romans 6, is that we have actually died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ so that we no longer will be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Romans 6 verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is here to give spiritual release and freedom. And he says, recovering of sight to the blind. And I love the way that that's said, recovering. There was something that was lost. Mankind lost their sight. And now it's recovered in Jesus. And the spiritual sight that Jesus gave. You know, the Pharisees wondered about this. Jesus talked about coming into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind in John chapter 9. 
And some of the Pharisees came near Jesus, heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so to understand, first of all, that you are blind spiritually, that's one of the first steps towards receiving the sight that Jesus offers. And then he lastly says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And you know, sin is oppressive. Guilt is oppressive. Satan is oppressive. The world system is oppressive. But Jesus gives a beautiful freedom. He doesn't come in and oppress. No, he sets free. He releases us from that spiritual oppression. And so the wonderful message of Jesus, this spiritual thrust in this mission statement of what he would do in people's lives. And so Jesus quotes this there in that synagogue on that day. And he rolled up the scroll, verse 20, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. A dramatic moment. And he began to say to them, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice, first of all, that this is what, verse 21, he began to say. So Luke doesn't give us the entirety of the message, but there would be words that would follow. But the beginning of this next portion, his exposition, so to speak, of that passage was today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the interesting thing is that in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, the very next phrase that Jesus stopped at is this, and the day of vengeance of our God. And so it seems as if Jesus strategically stopped where he stopped in order to communicate, I'm not here for the day of vengeance just yet. That day is yet future, of course, as there's a gap between the first and the second coming of Christ. But he announces to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the next thing that we're going to see here is the response of the people there in Nazareth. I mean, here you have this beautiful mission statement from Jesus. And, you know, who wouldn't want to enter into such a beautiful thing? Sight to the blind and good news for the spiritually impoverished and, you know, a freedom from oppression and captivity and that year of jubilee kind of attitude. And to enter into it, there are certain things that are required. And really it boils down to two things. Humility, to say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I do have need. Yes, I'm in need of God. And faith, belief that the Lord is able, belief that he is the one that needs to be turned to. But the people in Nazareth would exhibit the exact opposite. They would exhibit not humility, but pride, and not faith, but unbelief. So all, verse 22, spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That was their initial response. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And so uh, pretty soon their initial response became overshadowed by their familiarity with Jesus. This is Joseph's son. We, we know this guy. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. 
what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. One of the first things that Jesus tells them is that, listen, eventually you're going to say this particular proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, they would not say to the Lord, we need healing. We need help. Thank you for being here, O oh great physician, to help us in our sad state. No, instead, they would look at Jesus and say, we're not the one with the problem. You are the one with the problem. We don't have any need. And all this is simply is spiritual pride. And pride will keep a person from experiencing Jesus, not only for salvation, but wouldn't we say that also pride will keep us from experiencing Christ on a daily basis? I mean, if I wake up in the morning and in my heart, I feel that I don't need any help. The day that's in front of me is very manageable. I'll be able to accomplish it in my own strength and in my own might. If that's the attitude of my heart, the attitude of my soul, well, won't I, through that spiritual pride, be kept from the great blessing of seeing Jesus practically work inside of my life? I think in some ways the answer would be yes. And so it will keep us, spiritual pride, from salvation, but also will probably keep us in many ways from just experiencing the Lord's work in our lives in a personal way and a daily walk with him. But secondly, they would also say, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown uh, as well. Now, there's a chance that this is just a phrase that is connected to the idea of physician, heal yourself. In other words, hey, you know, we're your people here in your hometown. You're doing all these things out in Capernaum. Well, hey, physician, come home, heal yourself, heal your people that are here. Do some of that work here. But it seems like what's happening as well is that because this was the hometown of Jesus, there was a limit to the work that he could produce in that place. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, in a parallel passage, he says he could do no mighty work in Nazareth, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And so there seems to be a connection between the unbelief of the people and the relative you know, smallness of the work of Jesus, the lack of a mighty work in their midst as a result of their unbelief. And Jesus marveled because of that unbelief. On the flip side, Jesus marveled because of the belief of a centurion Gentile in Matthew chapter 8. The man came to Jesus and said, listen, I, I'm under authority and uh, I understand authority and I can see that you're in authority. And I'm asking that you would come and, and that you would heal my servant. Jesus said, I'll come with you. And the, and the centurion said, no, you don't need to actually physically go. I understand authority. You just speak and my servant will be made well. And when Jesus heard this, Matthew 8, verse 10, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
And so where Jesus expected there to be faith, if you could say it that way, in Nazareth, a place that should have had it, he marveled that they didn't. But in a Gentile centurion, where you wouldn't expect to find faith, he found it. And he marveled because of that great faith. But, you know, unbelief, a lack of faith will keep you from experiencing Jesus. Again, in salvation, but also secondarily in our own walks with the Lord. You know, if you just have in your heart this thing that you say to yourself, well, you know, prayer just seems silly. God is sovereign. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. I don't think I really need to cry out to the Lord and pour out my heart before him. If that's the attitude of your heart, you'll be kept from uh, that experience of Christ. That unbelief will keep you from really tasting uh, what the Lord wants to do inside of your life. And let me remind you, his mission statement is all good. It's wonderful what he wants to do inside of a human life and heart. But faith is part of the necessary ingredient to see the Lord work inside of our lives. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Someone said, an expert is an ordinary man from another town. And you know, Jesus just here is stating a great truth. You know that so often those that know you, those that have experienced you, those that have seen your life, uh, they have a difficult time receiving perhaps from you. And, and even Jesus himself, here he is, the prophet of all prophets, and he was not accepted in his hometown. And this is just merely the people of Nazareth taking Jesus for granted, an over-familiarity with Christ. But in truth, verse 25, I tell you, there were many widows in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah, Jesus said, was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And, verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, what Jesus does here, to me, is just absolutely masterful. I mean, as a, as a Bible teacher, you know, it's just hard not to see that Jesus is the Bible teacher of all Bible teachers. I mean, he points out to the people there in Nazareth, Listen, you don't have faith and you have this pride that's getting in your way, this spiritual pride. And then what he does here is he shows them that here they are, his hometown, and he's going to work outside of his hometown. Well, he's going to show them two things in the Old Testament. Number one, he's going to say, you know, God in the past has worked outside of the hometown. He's worked outside of Israel. He went to Sidon and he went to Syria. He's willing to go outside of the hometown. But secondly, he's showing in these two stories that, you know, Nazareth, you lack humility. Well, here's a case of a person who had humility and it led to great blessing in their lives. And you lack faith. Well, here's a person who had faith and it led to a great blessing in their lives. And the first story that he talks about is uh, through the prophet Elijah, the widow at uh, Zarephath. Now, the story of Elijah's life is, to me, one of my favorites. It's a beautiful story. But uh, in 1 Kings 17, he goes into King Ahab, who 
had introduced the worship of Baal into northern Israel. And Elijah is an unknown quantity before 1 Kings 17. But in looking at the book of James and elsewhere, it appears that what happened is that Elijah became grieved over the worship of Baal. And probably through reading God's word and discovering that God had promised that idolatry would bring famine and drought in discipline upon the people of Israel, Elijah began to pray for a drought. Goes into Ahab and says, listen, it's not going to rain, uh, but these years, except by my word. And then he went out and hid from Ahab and lived at the brook Cherith, where God gave him water from the stream and fed him meat from the mouths of ravens who brought it to him morning and evening. Eventually, the water of the brook dried up because, well, after all, there was a drought in the land. And God told Elijah to go to a Gentile town called Zarephath, where a widow would take care of him. And so Elijah goes to Zarephath, and at the outskirts of the town, there was a woman gathering sticks, and she was a widow. Well, Elijah approaches her and asks her to give him some water and some bread. And her response was so depressing, really, at first glance. It demonstrated that up there in Zarephath, they were also experiencing the drought and the famine, that the people of God's disobedience had affected them as well. And she says, listen, I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in my jug, and I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You know, here you are asking me for bread. I don't know who you are, but I only have a little bit left. And I'm going in, I'm gathering sticks to build a fire to go in. My son and I will eat it and then we're just going to die. There's no hope for us. And the interesting thing is that Elijah responded to her and said, Okay, don't fear, do what you said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. And if you do, the jar says God, a flower will not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she had a decision to make. Will she obey? Will she listen? Or will she say, look, I don't know who you are, but that's crazy talk. And what did she do? She had faith. She believed. She took that risk and she had nothing to lose anyhow, much like us in our current condition. We've got nothing to lose. Might as well just be obedient to the Lord. And she expressed her faith by obeying and the Lord wonderfully provided for her during the duration of that entire famine. And then he tells another story, Jesus does, in verse 27, where he talks about the faith of Naaman the Syrian. You know, there were many lepers, he says, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, Naaman was a Syrian general who had leprosy. He had a little slave girl who was an Israelite in his home, probably because of a previous conquest. And that little girl saw that he had leprosy. She told her master, and he went to his king. And eventually his king went to the king of Israel and said, could you heal my general? He's a trusted man. I need him to be healthy. The king ripped his garments and said, Am I God that I can heal a man? But Elisha, the prophet, 
the, the one who took over from Elijah, Elisha, the prophet, said, send him down to me. And when Naaman showed up with his chariot and his gifts and his servants and his pomp and circumstance, Elisha didn't even come out of his home. He sent his servant out to say, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you will be clean. Uh, Naaman was furious because he said, well, I thought that he would come out and meet me face to face. I'm an important person. I thought that he would come out and meet with me, wave his hand over me and heal me. We have rivers back at home. I don't need to do this thing in this muddy Jordan River. But his servants came to him and said, you know, if he'd have told you to do a great thing, I'm sure you would have done it. But did you notice the last word? You will be clean. And Naaman then said, you know, you're right. And he humbled himself, went into the Jordan River, and his flesh became like a little child's flesh. And what did Naaman have to do to enter into the blessings of God? And what do we have to do to enter in to the mission statement of Jesus? Well, Naaman had humility. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, it says in James chapter 4, verse 6, he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when the people, Luke 4, verse 28, heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They did not like this word about the Gentiles, but passing through their midst, he went away. It wasn't time yet for Jesus to die, protected by the Father, but indicative of the heart and attitude of the people. They would hate the message of Jesus, and ultimately this would lead to his crucifixion. But now was not yet his time. But we approach the Lord. We receive from the Lord through faith and humility. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.